This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. What do you remember from the 1982 World Series? That year, it was a battle between the hard-hitting Milwaukee Brewers in their first and to this date only World Series appearance against the defensive and speed-oriented St. Louis Cardinals. However, this series had a lot more than met the eye. It was not only a battle between two Midwestern cities on the diamond, the backdrop of that fall classic had a lot to do with beer. Hello sports fans and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host Dana Augusta. I'm glad, grateful, and thankful for you taking time out of your day or evening or night to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. In today's show, we will speak with author Jonathan Daniel on his new book, Sud series, Baseball, Beer Wars, and the Summer of 82. We talk about the book, the series, and the Sudsy backdrop of that year's Fall Classic. Later in the show, we will send a shout out to former heavyweight boxing champion Jack Johnson, who was the first African American heavyweight boxing champion who, this week and 108 years ago in Havana, Cuba, lost the title to Jess Willard. And also, of course, the top five sports moments in history that are celebrating anniversaries this week, which includes the debut of the first black manager in baseball history, one of the most dramatic endings in college basketball history, and one of the top sports moments for a city that is known as the city too busy to hate. So sit back, pump up the volume, because you're going down sports memory lane with the top down on Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. 
Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Ladies and gentlemen, and we're back, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. Now, if someone were to ask you, what was the first World Series that you remember watching as a child? Well, for me, it had to be the 1982 World Series between the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals. That season, I was nine years old. And watching these two teams play on the field with it going to with to going to an exciting seven game series, little did anybody little did I realize as a nine year old that there were so many things that was going on behind the scenes of this series, more specifically the rivalry between the cities of St. Louis and Milwaukee. Coming on board with us is author Jonathan Daniel with his new book. The Sud Series, Baseball, Beer Wars, and the Summer of 82. And Mr. Daniel, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for coming in. Well, thanks for having me, Dana. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Now, you, you in the title, it says the Baseball and Beer Wars. Now, talk about the Beer Wars. Now, when you talk about St. Louis and you talk about Milwaukee, those are two primarily beer-making cities here in the United States, with the exception of maybe Denver with Coors. But you got Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis. You have Miller Brewing Company in Milwaukee. There's a natural rivalry there. That's like Coke and Pepsi when we're talking about beer. So talk Absolutely. about that. We talk about that for, for a minute. Yeah, that was one. That's sort of the the undercurrent of the book, if you will, kind of a thread that I that I run throughout. And you know, it was interesting because I mean, for years, Budweiser was the dominant beer on the market um, in the United States. And then um, Miller introduced Miller Lite in the seventies, and um, and it really kind of shook things up a little bit. I mean, I get into a, more of it in the book, but really, what happened was uh, Budweiser saw that Miller was starting to eat into their market share. Um, with Miller Lite. And so they decided to to come out with their own light beer. Um, and it was originally, if you remember, well, you probably don't because you just said you were nine. Um, it was called Budweiser Light. Um, and so they, but it came out in 1982, in the, in the spring of 1982. And that was one of the big things that sort of uh, helped, helped Budweiser stay on top and eventually, um, you know, keep going with, with their dominance in the beer market. But for a while their Miller was getting close. And so you know, in the book, I talk about how, you know, the, the origin of, of Miller Lite and of, of Bud Light and, uh, and and the rivalry between those two cities and specifically those two breweries. There were, you know, because, you know, there are a lot of other breweries in Milwaukee, um, but Miller was the, the predominant one and obviously was and still is a big sponsor of the brewers. So and, and with the Cardinals being owned by August Bush, um, that became, you know, sort of a central a central underlying narrative of the entire story. So that was fun to dig into. Uh, one of the best books I read about that was something called, um, it was uh, not, it's a, the, the history of Budweiser, Bitter Brew is what it was called. Um, and it was a history of Budweiser and how it started out. And, and I called a lot of information from that book. And it was really interesting. I was trying to find a similar book for the history of Miller. I couldn't find anything specific, but I was able to find some articles that, helped fill in some gaps for me. And it, that was, it was an interesting, and as a, as a bud man myself, um, I, I enjoyed it. So. 
when you, now you now you touched on it a little bit on the, the reasons why you went that direction. But what was the inspiration for you to write a book like this? You know, you have the eighty two you have the eighty two World Series, and then you have this beer war that's going on in between it. What was was it something that you heard about that that got you immediately interested in that, or what? Well, this was this is my second book. So my first one was about nineteen eighty, and um. I, I really like to weave in, I don't, you know, when you write a book about a season that took place 40 years ago, you're not breaking news, right? No one's going to read this book and, and wait till the end to find out who won the World Series. So you have to tell other stories um, and you have to dig a lot. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy is the research process. And so um, in coming through all this different, all these different stories that you run through, it's a challenge to me to weave it all into a narrative and to to say, okay, this relates to this how, and this relates to this. And, and, and my first book, it was, I didn't really have that overarching theme. There was just sort of a, you know, chronology of events, so to speak, and people still enjoyed it. Um, but that was one of the criticisms that I heard. And so I wanted to have a thread that really kind of pulled everything together um, that I could keep revisiting um, rather than just saying, you know, hey, on this date, this happened, and it doesn't have anything to do with baseball, and now let's talk about baseball. So um, that was something that I really was – it was important to me to do, and it was also important to the publisher to, to you know, have a more of a narrative thread throughout the book other than just, like I said, a chronological list of events that happened. Well, that's very interesting because, uh, like I said, I'm doing some research on my end – Talking about the 1982 season and talking about the, you know, there was a lot of different things outside of just the World Series and baseball season that year. You know, 1982, you remember, was the year after the 81 player strike that pretty much turned the entire postseason out of whack than what we normally would have. And this is somewhat of a, you know, kind of like baseball fixing itself, so to speak, in the next year in 82. And then you have these two teams representing these two beer making capitals, if you would, if you will, in the United States. What was the when you think of that season, the 82 baseball season, because I know you're a baseball guy. And thinking of the 82 season, what were some of the things that would stick out in your mind dealing with that year? Uh, Well, one of the first ones is Ricky. I mean, you know, just how many, I mean, he stole what, 130 bases. Um, talking about Ricky Henderson. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's Ricky, there was, you know, the, the twins, the twins opened and opened the, the Metrodome and were just awful, just historically bad. Um, the Reds, you know, were coming off that having the best record in baseball and they can just fell flat on their faces. They, they traded their entire starting outfield from the, from the previous year counted on rookies that didn't come through and, um, and ended up costing John McNamara, his job. The Astros had a really bad year as well. And it cost Bill Verdon, his job. Um, and then, you know, you, you had these two cities were, you know, Milwaukee and St. Louis, uh, the big thing that other that also ties these two cities together too is Whitey Herzog because That's right. Whitey Herzog makes the huge trade in the in the winter meetings in 1980 and, and ends up trading to Milwaukee the next two Cy Young Award winners in the American League uh, and then beats them in the World Series which is 
a, a pretty phenomenal accomplishment and pretty gutsy too to trade away talent like that. And if you look at the big trade when they when they picked up David Green, he was this you know phenomenal Uber prospect, um, and it didn't work for the Cardinals on that end. And he still beat them. Um, and you know, granted, there's there's lots of arguments made, and a lot and a lot of them have merit too. Is well, if Raleigh Fingers was healthy. Um, you know, the, the 82 series has a different outcome. If Pete Vukovic was healthy, you know, um, maybe there's a different outcome. Gorman Thomas got hurt in the ALCS. So that was a factor. I mean, and, and St. Louis had injuries as well. But, I mean, when you think about a guy who, or, you know, a manager, he came in in, in the middle of 1980 and completely rebuilt that Cardinals team. I mean, from start to fit, from, from top to bottom. I mean, and, and there was... I think he made 68 player moves between the time that he picked up when I mean, he became the manager slash general manager and, and opening day in 82. Um, and so he completely redid that roster and basically turned it into what he had in Kansas city, where he wanted a good fielding team that hit the ball in the gaps and could run all day. And that's what he did. And it worked obviously um, because they went back to the world series in 85 um, and, and uh you know, I mean, he he put together a great team, and and but I, I mean, it always sticks to me that, you know, to trade away two players of that caliber, and I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the Cardinals win that World Series, and and on Game Seven, there were five Hall of Famers on the field for Milwaukee, or not on the field, but I mean, in the on the field slash in the dugout, because um, Don Sutton didn't pitch in Game Seven, but um, you know, to beat a team that has five Hall of Famers is is something. It's impressive. Now, let's talk about that St. Louis Cardinals team. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. This was the, the night when they reached the postseason in 1982. That was the first time they had been in the postseason since 68 World Series. Am I correct on that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, th- that had been a really down, you know, a, a bad span of Cardinals baseball. I mean, and, and and that was one of the things that Herzog talked about in his books, which I touched on in this one as well, is, you know, he took over the team and was just like, you know, talking to, to Gussie Bush and saying, what have we got here? Um, you know, he had a, a bunch of plotting, um, you know, players that couldn't really run, that weren't good defenders. Um, he had, you know, guys that, I mean, the, the, the big thing, and I don't want to disparage Gary Templeton, but I mean, because Gary Templeton was a tremendous player. Um, but when when he had his incident in '81, where he uh, made an obscene gesture to the fans, I mean that was the he kind of had to go. I mean, unfortunately, and you know for him, um, and so they make that big trade and get Ozzy. Basically, it's a, it's, a, it's essentially a one for one swap, and then there were contract things on going on with Ozzy that they had to work out. So the, I mean that deal was kind of consummated on paper, and I think it was in. December and they didn't agree. Ozzy didn't agree to the terms until maybe February. Um, and then he went to arbitration. That was basically what they did. It just said, look, we'll sign you to a one-year deal and you go to arbitration and we'll see what happens after that. And, you know, so Ozzy Smith and, and um, Whitey Herzog had a bet where every time Ozzy hit the ball in the air, he owed, he owed Whitey a buck. And every time, uh, he hit the ball on the ground. Herzog owed him a buck, and they ended up calling it off because Ozzy was taking too much of Herzog's money. Um, <laughs> but that was the thing where you know he he really reshaped and you know talked to Ozzy about what kind of a player he wanted to be. But he was the perfect player for for uh, Whitey Herzog. Where he, I mean, he played defense, and and Whitey didn't really care 
for the most part, how well he hit, it was all about making plays in the infield because that's what Whitey, you know, really valued. And that's why he went out. I mean, you you talk about strength up the middle. They had Daryl Porter, a catcher. You've got um, Ozzy at, at shortstop, Tommy Hurt, second base, who, who Whitey Herzog will rave about. And then in center field, ultimately, Willie McGee, which was another story that Whitey stole from the New York Yankees in, in uh, the fall of, of 81. So, Yeah, I was just about to touch on Willie McGee and the, the contributions that he made during that year coming from the New York Yankees. As you said, pretty much Whitey stole him from the Yankees, essentially. Um but that's but 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 that St. Louis team, the '82 St. Louis team. Do you kind of attribute that team for the resurgence of the popularity of the the Cardinals in St. Louis? Because when you think of the city of St. Louis, you think of baseball. Just like when you think of Pittsburgh, you think of the Steelers, or whenever you right. of 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 maybe Boston, you think of maybe the Celtics or the Bruins. You know. But St. Louis has always been a baseball town. Do you think that the 82 team in St. Louis had a lot to do with that? You know, that's a great question. And to be honest, I don't feel, I don't feel um, qualified to answer that question because I've never even been to St. Louis. <laughs> so <laughs> I, hope to, I hope to go this summer and do some stuff to promote the book. But, I mean, I would think to your point, they've, you know, they haven't really had a stretch since then where they, you know, they they've had some some down stretches, but nothing like the stretch that they had between the late '60s and the early '80s, and um and ever since then, I mean, I think, you know, another another similar. I mean, Cincinnati is a, is a great baseball town too, but people in Cincinnati are pissed because the Reds are terrible and they hate the ownership. So I think people in in, in St. Louis, it was still a baseball town, but the Cardinals weren't winning, and so you didn't really hear as much about it, or, or you know, um, but all of a sudden when they got back on top. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, it completely revitalized that franchise and, and, you know, I mean, I, it, they're, they're one of those, you know, every sport has them, the, those, the important franchises and you just touched on a lot of them. Right. And I mean, obviously you include the Yankees or the, the Dallas Cowboys and, 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 and the sport is better off when those teams are good, exactly. whether or not you like those teams is a separate story, a separate issue, but the sport is better off when they're winning. And the Cardinals are absolutely in that boat as well. And St. Louis is, is and always has been a great baseball town. Now, we talked about St. Louis. Um, that team ended up reaching the World Series. They swept the Braves in the 82 National League Championship Series. They were 90. Let me see. In my notes here, they were 92 and 70. They won the National League East. They played the Braves in the National League Championship Series. They actually swept the Braves which was the Joe Torrey-led Braves, and the pitching coach yep. was a former Cardinal, yes. Bob Gibson. And they swept the Braves. They end up going to the World Series. And waiting for them in the World Series was the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, doing my research, I realized something, that the fact that the Cardinals were last in the National League in home runs. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Brewers led the, I think, led the majors in home runs. So yep. you basically had two completely different opposite teams meeting in the World Series in 82. You know, the, the, the Brewers, of course, known for the hitting, known as Harvey's Wallbangers after Harvey Keene, the, the manager who was basically, who took over midway through the year for the Brewers. It, you know, it took over, let me see, he took over for uh, Buck, Buck Rogers. Rogers. 
you know, yeah. Buck Rogers was the manager. He he was fired. I think he was fired midway through the year, and then Harvey Keene came over, uh, was was promoted to manager. Talk about that Milwaukee Brewers team. They, that that Milwaukee Brewers team is one of the big reasons why I wanted to write this book because I have always been fascinated by that by that Brewers team about how I feel they probably should have won that year. Um, they didn't have. They looked like they were maybe set up for a longer run, and they kind of just fizzled after that. I mean, again, when you when you lose fingers and and Vukovic, that certainly hurts. Um, but I, they were a fascinating team, and, and to your point, they just bludgeoned people. I mean, they they had, they made the playoffs in '81 in the in the wonky you know strike playoff season, right? And everyone thought, including the Brewers' ownership, that they were they were poised to make a run in '82, and they got off to an awful start. No, um, Bud Selig was the owner of the Brewers, right at that time. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so, so every, they just they were underachieving, and Buck Rogers had rubbed some guys on the team the wrong way. Um, so when you have personality conflicts with a manager and an underachieving team, um, and Harvey Keene was waiting in the wings, who had been a longtime hitting coach, um, and you know, I, you look at there are some similarities, I think. And, and I don't want to make too I, – I would like to overgeneralize this, right, and say you look at what happened last year with the Philadelphia Phillies. And, and when, when they fired Joe Girardi and I thought, well, that's, you know, okay, that's fine, but that's not going to make them feel better, and, and that's not going to fix their pitching staff. But all of a sudden they get a new manager and the attitude changes and they took off. And that's exactly what happened with, with the Brewers in 82. You know, Harvey Keene's one of his big things was – just relax, go out, have fun, and play baseball. And that's what they did. And all of a sudden, they just started crushing the ball and bludgeoning people and, you know, had multiple games where they're hitting three, four, five home runs in a game. And, and you know, you're old enough to remember, right? I mean, now three, four, five home runs in a game, fairly routine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in 82, it wasn't, you know? I mean, you look, if you go back and really dig into some box scores – you you look at games where where teams score 10 12 runs and they don't hit any homers or right. you know or they'll score eight runs with no extra base hits or something like that so i mean it wasn't just you know the the three true outcome game that we have seen um but if you really dig into the box scores you see you know there were a lot of teams that were manufacturing runs and putting runs on the board and when you have a team like the brewers with all those guys that can that can hit you 20 plus homers that was a force to be reckoned with. And, and, you know, you can't make a mistake because even if, you know, if you hang a, a breaking ball, someone's going to hit it out of the ballpark. Or if it's a, you know, if it's a Jim Gantner or somebody down, you know, in a different part that doesn't have a lot of, a lot of power, maybe they get on, but that puts pressure on you because the next guy up can hit the ball out of the ballpark. And so you've really got to pay attention or I mean, really bear down when you're facing that team. And it just puts a lot of pressure on pitchers. Now, Milwaukee played their games at the time at Milwaukee County Stadium. Do you think that the stadium had something to do with the, the amount of home runs that they hit? Because from what I remember of County Stadium, it wasn't like it wasn't. Would you? Well, let me ask you this. Do you consider County Stadium a hitter's park or a pitcher's park? Because I've heard conflicting things over the years about that place. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily know that it was one or the other. I mean, I remember, I remember when um, I, I used to work with the Tampa Bay Rays, um, and I remember when when the ballpark in Seattle opened, uh, um, and and um, Dwayne Stats, the Rays broadcaster, said 
this ballpark plays fair, you know, so it's not necessarily a hitter's park or a pitcher's park. But I think when you, you know, to go back to my previous point, if you put Gorman Thomas and Cecil Cooper and, and Robin Yount and Paul Molitor and Charlie Moore, they make it a hitter's park. It doesn't matter where it is. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, they have the top three guys in the American league in hits that year, which is insane. Right. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think, to, so, I mean, to be quite honest with you, I haven't broken down the numbers in terms of whether or not Milwaukee was a hitter or a pitcher's park. I would tend to think that it len- leaned more toward being a hitter's park. Um, but again, if you put that lineup in any park, it's going to become a hitter's park. Right. I mean, to your point, Ted Simmons, the catcher, 23 home runs. Cecil Cooper, 32 home runs. Robin Young, 29 home runs. Ben Ogilvy, 34 home runs. Gorman Thomas, 39 home runs. So you're talking about now, this is 1982. Guys hitting, you had one, two, three guys that hit over 30 home runs on one team. In 1982, literally, that was unheard of. You know, and hence to the name, the uh, Harvey's Wallbangers, because those guys were hitters as opposed to the Cardinals. You only had two guys in their starting lineup that hit double digit home runs, which was Daryl Porter and George Hendrick. So with those guys in Milwaukee, they were, they were some hitters. They were a lot of hitters, but unfortunately you said it yourself that the, the problem with Milwaukee heading into the series with, the Cardinals actually was pitching and their two main guys, um, Pete Vukovic and Raleigh fingers were dealing with injuries. You know, speak a little bit more on, on, on the pitchers for, for Milwaukee. Yeah. So, I mean, Raleigh fingers in 80 and 81 was the MVP and the Cy Young award winner and was just lights out. Um, and he, and, you know, he was one of the centerpieces of that big trade between the Cardinals and the Brewers prior to 81. Um, so he, you know, he was the best pretty, I mean, one of, one of, if not the best relief pitcher in the game at the time, obviously Bruce Suter is in the conversation as well. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to him in a moment, but, or we can get to him in a moment, but, but so, so, you know, again, any baseball fan, you don't have to be a fan of baseball in the 1980s. If you have a hammer in the bullpen, you know, basically if you've got a lead late in the game, it's over. And remember in the eighties, you know, firemen, as they were called, they yeah. would routinely come in in the seventh inning. It wasn't, it was not the case that they bring these guys in with one out in the ninth or something. I mean, they would routinely come in in the seventh or eighth inning, get six out saves, eight out saves. Um, so Raleigh Fingers was vital to that club um, and ended up blowing out his, basically blowing out his elbow. Um, he tore a muscle um, and, <laughs> And he was done and they, you know, but they kind of played it coy and they were saying, well, maybe he can throw and then well, let's give him some rest. This was in September when this happened, early September. Um, so he, you know, he suited up for the World Series games and was down in the bullpen. But he said later, you know, he couldn't he couldn't go at all. He couldn't throw at all. And then later on, we found out after the season was over that Pete Vukovic tore his rotator cuff in September and pitched through it, including pitching game seven of the World Series right. and pitching well. Um, but he was, he was never the same either. And he, you know, there was an interview that he had done for another book that I, that I had pulled from where he said, you know, you could say I gave up my career for Harvey Keene. I mean, for, yeah, for Harvey Keene, because, you know, he pitched through that 
but he said he would do it again in a heartbeat because a he loved Harvey Keen and b you, you know when those cho- chances come up you can't set you know you've got to do what you got to do you know I mean and and you might never get back and for his point he never did and and you know had he shut it down in September who knows what happens maybe he you know he gets it corrected and they have they come back or whatever who knows what would have happened but um but yeah his point was look you got to do it and um so I mean just the, the 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 guts that he had to pitch through that um, is really amazing and to still be effective. I mean, if you go back and look at his numbers in September, they weren't as good as they were um, during the regular season, but I don't know how you can expect someone's numbers to be as good when they're pitching with a torn rotator cuff as when you have an intact rotator cuff. Um, But they weren't noticeably, you know, worse. It wasn't like all of a sudden his ERA was seven. Um, I mean, he was still just gutted it out um, and knew how to pitch. And, um, you know, and he was really an amazing story, too. I mean, he I talk about in the book, he literally should have died multiple times <laughs> over the course of his life. He was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. He almost got electrocuted. He was in a bad car crash. And so, you know, people asked him about that. And he said, now you see why I'm not nervous when I'm out on the mound, you know, in a big spot because I, you know, kind of shouldn't be here. So um, that's kind of a, you know, if you can take that attitude, that's going to, Obviously, as you know, having that that not even just the positive attitude, but just being able to put things in perspective and not get caught up in the moment really helps you, you know, slow that heart rate down, focus on what you're trying to do. Um, And we've seen there's a lot of guys that can't do that, regardless of how much talent they have. And Vuk was was a guy who just, you know, hey, man, I'm out here and, you know, let's let's go get it. Now, now going on to the other side, you know, you you, you mentioned the guy's name. You you mentioned the the, the reliever for the for the Cardinals. Uh, you know, talk about Bruce Souter. Uh, he was, you know, you, back then, like you said, that you needed a hammer out of the bullpen, and Bruce Souter was definitely that hammer for the, you know, for the Cardinals as well as uh, Joaquin Andujar. As the yeah. ace of that franchise, as the ace pitcher for the Cardinals, because he started game seven in the World Series against Milwaukee. You know, talk about those two guys. Yeah, I mean, very different contrasts or a, a study in contrast, I should say, two different, very, very different guys. So Suter, Suter won the Cy Young with Chicago in 1979, but he hated pitching for the Cubs. He hated the Cubs organization. He wanted to get out. And so, um, after the or uh, entering the night was after entering 1980, Raleigh Fingers and Bruce Souter were actually teammates on the Cardinals for about a week in December, uh-huh. because Herzog went out and traded for both of them, um, and then used Fingers as the as, as part of that big trade to get to Milwaukee. But um, Souter was you know another one of those guys. I mean, he was kind of the the first guy that really mastered the splitter. Um, and it was just devastating. Guys couldn't hit it. They'd never seen it before, um, or at least not one that good. And um, he was absolutely phenomenal. And so he was he was a key, absolute key to to that Cardinals organization or to that Cardinals team. And, and again, if the Cardinals, you know, if you don't hit a lot of home runs, you're going to be playing a lot of close games. And the Cardinals knew once again, once the game got into the seventh or eighth inning they were probably good because they could just give the ball to Suter and they were, you know, he was going to take care of it. And then Andujar was an, another really interesting guy who was a tremendously talented pitcher, kind of a wild card. Um, you know, he was a little, little high strung, um, but he really 
settled down and, and really respected um, the Cardinals pitching coach, Hub Kittle. And, you know, Hub kind of harnessed a lot of the, the I don't want to say wildness. I don't mean wildness in terms of where the ball was going. But just, I mean, he was, Andrew Hub was a hothead. I mean, you know, and, but Hub got him to, uh, to kind of calm down, focus on what he was doing, even, even taught him how to become a better hitter and, and teach himself how to help or taught him how to help himself by being a better hitter. There was a story that, you know, where Andujar swung, I think it was a 38 ounce bat and he just tried to hit a home run every time he came up and Hub Kittle said, you know, why don't you try to use a lighter bat and maybe try to actually get a freaking hit and move <laughs> a runner, you know, move a runner across because if that runner scores, that's going to help you maybe win some games. Um, and, and of course, Andujar, you know, got hit by, by a comebacker earlier in the series. And so there was some doubt if he was even going to be able to pitch game seven. Um, and that was where the, one of the big things, you know, with his catchphrase of me, one tough Dominican and people would say, you know, they were, there's stories where he would, he was warming up before game seven and the Cardinals actually warmed Andujar up and someone else up in the bullpen before game seven in case Andujar couldn't go. They had somebody else ready to go. And so they're, they're warming people up in the bullpen and, and they're like, you know, Joaquin, how are you feeling? And he would just say me one tough Dominican, you know, he wouldn't even really say how he felt, um, but he went out and shoved, you know, he went out and pitched really well um, and in a huge moment. So, I mean, tip of the hat to him. Now, the Cardinals ended up winning the series in seven games. The MVP of the series was catcher Daryl Porter. Now, to a lot of people, Daryl Porter is one of those names that's kind of gotten, you know, kind of like left under the rug, so to speak. No one really knows a lot about him, but he was clutch during that series. He was clutch during that series, and he was a great he was a great player for you know maybe for a limited window. Um, and and again, when he went through all sorts of really tough personal troubles, he he struggled with alcohol and 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 uh, drug abuse. He actually wrote a book called Snap Me Perfect, which is a very interesting read and a very scary read um, when you talk about what he went through in 1980. And so in 1980, he he left. He was with the Royals. And he left the team to go to rehab, um, came back and really turned his life around. And he had, you know, and, and he was the guy, you know, when they, when he catching for St. Louis and when they traded Ted Simmons, Simmons was an immensely popular player in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were sort of predisposed to not like Daryl Porter because he wasn't Ted Simmons. And Ted Simmons was their guy. So he had that pressure as well that he had to deal with. And he didn't have a great year in 81. Um, and, you know, had a kind of a marginal year in 82 during the regular season, but he really came alive during the postseason. And I mean, he was one of another one of Whitey's guys because he had played for Whitey in Kansas City. And so Whitey knew exactly what he had in Daryl Porter. And he was one of the prime. I think Porter, I think, was the first free agent that Whitey signed. Um, and when he became general manager of the Cardinals, because that's how much, that's how important he was. That's how he, 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 how much he valued him. And so he was one of those guys that to your point is not, you know, he's not household name and, you know, an argument can maybe, maybe wasn't even a household name in 82. Um, but he was a key part of that team. And as you said, delivered some really clutch hits and, you know, there's, there's really kind of cool stories about if you, you can look around and see pictures of him in the, uh, in the locker room after they won the world series and he's holding a diet Pepsi uh, <laughs> because, you know, he had, 
he, he, he couldn't drink, you know, and so, and everybody, but also everybody respected that and they knew. And so there's, you know, guys pouring champagne over his head and he's smiling, but he's, he's holding a diet Pepsi. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of cool. I mean, uh, tragically that he, that ended up, um, you know, he ended up having a relapse and it ended up costing him his life. Um, it's a, a tragic story, but he was, a seemed like a really, really good guy. And, uh, you know, and, and was a really good baseball player. Now let's, um, with the Cardinals, they win it in 82. They go back in 85. They lose in 85 to the Royals and they go back in 87 and they lose to the twins in 87. And I think that that really cemented St. Louis as a baseball town, as opposed to Milwaukee. Do you think that that team it was kind of like of a one-shot wonder for them to make the World Series. Um, they never went back to the World Series after 82. They've had very limited success in the postseason since then. Do you think that, you know, that was like their one shot, you know, that the, 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 it was like the window was open and then suddenly closed for them? They, the window was definitely brief. It opened and then it closed very, very quickly. Having, I mean, but I think, anybody can get back, you know, and I think that, you know, they, they might be headed in the right direction, but we've been saying that for a while. I mean, they made the playoffs a couple of times and they went out and remember they went out and got CC Sabathia a couple not a couple of years ago. We're old, right? So everything happened a couple of <laughs> years ago, um, but they went out and, a number of years ago, went out and got CC Sabathia and you don't often, didn't often see the Brewers going out and getting guys at the deadline, you know? So um I think there's there's still hope if you're a Brewers fan. And, I mean, I remember one of the coolest moments I've ever had at a ballpark was at a Brewers game. It's a Brewers-Reds game. It was a meaningless game in May. Both Neither team went anywhere that year. But um, that was back when Trevor Hoffman was closing for the Brewers and his walkout music was Hell's Bells. Yeah. And as soon as the Brewers made the final out, in the top or the bottom of the eighth inning, the Brewers had a lead hitting into the top of the ninth. And as soon as the last out was recorded in the bottom of the eighth inning, that first bell mm-hmm. of hell's bells hits and the, they, you know, turn it up to 11 in the ballpark as, as they say. Right. And it was just this electric moment. It was, I, I have never forgotten it. It was shoot almost 20 years ago at this point. Um, but it was so cool to be a part of that. And so, I mean, they they still love their baseball in Wisconsin, and certainly that's a you know that's to, we talked about it earlier. That's a Packers town, right? That's yes. not a Brewers town, but they love that team. They love the Brewers, and they especially love that '82 Brewers team. I mean, everybody that's been that's that was alive then remembers that '82 Brewers team, and those guys are still their guys. Um, that was a tremendously talented team. And like I said, I wish they had had a longer window because you want to see teams like that stay together. And it just didn't happen. Now I would be remiss if I did not talk about two guys that I grew up watching off of that Brewers team that I was, I idolized all throughout my childhood watching baseball. And of course that's Paul Molitor and Robin Young. When you think of the Brewers, you think of Robin Yount. I don't care how old you are or what kind yep. of a fan you are, you always think of Robin Yount. And you also think about Paul Molitor as well, something of a of a throw-in. But Robin Yount was the Milwaukee Brewers. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was and he won his first MVP in 82 and and just was dominant. I mean, he just had a fantastic year. And and I mean, he was 
you know, you talk about guys who were born to be baseball players. And I think Robin Yount is, is one of the epitomes of that. I mean, he, he, he had a phenomenal season. And, and again, to, to, to hit, to hit the, for power that he did, he was in one of those guys. I don't remember exactly where he fell in the pecking order of one, two or three in, in terms of number of hits that year. Um, and then to play shortstop as well. Um, he, he was a phenomenal player and, you know, and just kind of a, I mean, I guess I would say throwback, but at the time, you know, I, I suppose there have always been throwback players, right? After, you know, even in the, the 1930s, there were throwback players to the 1880s or whatever you want to say. But, I mean, he right. was that kind of that old school guy who just went out, got dirty, played hard, um, played clean, and produced. And And Molly could just hit, could just flat hit. And if you look at his numbers, you know, he missed – two and a half, one and a half or two seasons basically combined where he had a lot of injury problems early on um, where he, you know, he could have had 3,500 hits maybe if he had, if he had stayed healthy. Um, he was just a phenomenal hitter. Um, and, and again, it wasn't necessarily, he wasn't a big power guy, but he could hit home runs and he wasn't, you know, didn't, he, he could just hit. Um, and you look at, I mean, it's really, that's one of the things that I've begun to appreciate about the game is just watching the mastery of that some of these guys have. Um, I mean, I was watching a game on opening day and I can't remember who it was now, but somebody, somebody basically spit on a, on a 104 mile an hour fastball that was like two inches off the plate. And like, nope, that's not a strike. And these guys are freaks. They're absolute freaks. And, you know, and so, we can, we can have the discussions about, and you see it all the time online. Oh, the game is ruined now with the bigger bases and the ghost runners and the pitch clock and all these things. And I, I understand those points and, and some of them I agree with, but at the end of the day, I just love watching the best players in the world play the game. Um, And, and, and at that time in 82, Yount and Molitor, were two of those guys. And now there's obviously a whole new group of guys. And, and I love watching the, these guys play now. I mean, I just, before we started this, I was watching Sunday night baseball, you know, and you're watching JT real Muto with a pop time of one, seven, six, posing somebody trying to steal, you know, that's, that's amazing. And so it's just, it's fun to watch the guys, these guys do what they do. And, and back in 82, it was the Brewers team was just fun to watch. And so were the Cardinals. And again, because that World Series was such a contrast in styles, you also have that, okay, well, which style is better, right? Is is it better to hit the ball in the gaps and run all day, or is it better to just crush the ball out of the ballpark? Ultimately, <clears throat> you know, for that year and that seven-game stretch, it was it was the small ball that won, um, but there were a lot of mitigating factors too. So, you know, the question was never really answered, at least for that series, but but it sure was fun to watch. Now, when you look at this, uh, I'm going to let you go with this. You know, I'm going to put you on the spot. All right. Do you think that this Milwaukee Brewers team, the way it was constructed back in 82, how successful do you think that team would be in today's game? Boy, that's a good question. I mean, I, th- I, I think they would be successful. I mean, you know, to, to what we talked about before, you put five Hall of Famers on any team, and they're going to be pretty good. Um, you have – if you have five guys that 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 are going to hit you 25 home runs or more, you're going to be pretty good. I think the big thing is, you know, in today's game is, is, is what happens with the pitching. Um, because I think there, 
I think it's more of a, I mean, one of the things that really struck me in researching this book was, was, you know, in the 82 world uh, ALCS, um, Mike Caldwell was pitching for Milwaukee and Jim Palmer was in the booth for ABC. And Palmer said that the Brewers pitching coach told him that if Caldwell throws more than 82 miles an hour, he's overthrowing. Wow. Right. So that was one of the things that really struck me is so when you talk about can this guy play in this era or that, I think the big thing is, you know, I think if Paul Molitor was 24 years old right now, he would still be Paul Molitor. Right. Um, but, you know, and, and maybe and, and certainly, you know, the top end guys of any era are going to be the top end guys. And maybe, you know, it's it's really how the bullpens are put together. I know I'm getting way in the weeds with my with your question here. So, I mean, so. I think, yeah, I mean, I think they could play, you know, because the, that Brewers team played the kind of baseball that is popular now and that wins games now where they, they hit the ball out of the ballpark. I would love to see more teams like that 82 Brewers team now where you have guys that put the ball in play and you have guys that hit the ball out of the ballpark. That's the thing that I really miss about the what has happened with the game is that there's far less of an emphasis of putting the ball in play. Um and I get it, you know, and, and we can debate the merits of, of it. Um, then there are lots, lots of mitigating factors. But at the end of the day, for a fan, I want to see the ball put in play. I want to see, you know, if the ball gets put in play, you see more good defensive plays. You see more errors. Um, you see, I mean, did, I don't know if you saw that Red Sox game the other, I think it was last night or two nights ago, where, you know, fly out that would have ended the game and the guy drops and the next guy hits and then Adam Duvall hits a walk-off. Yeah. You know, that's that stinks for the Orioles. Um, yeah. But again, it, the ball's put in play and you never know what happens when the ball gets put in play. Um, and so that's, you know, and that Brewers team, I mean, again, if you've got three guys that are one, two, three and hits, they're putting the ball in play. And and that that makes it a fun team to watch. And then the guys behind them, some were, you know, are going to hit the ball out of the ballpark. I mean, you remember Gorman Thomas, too. You always think of Gorman Thomas as this big kind of plodding guy. He was a center fielder. Yes, yes. absolutely. He was, you know, even though he was a big guy, he was an athletic big guy. Yeah. He was a very athletic big guy. Now, in my opinion, looking back on this, in my opinion, for what I saw, looking back on my research and looking back at film and stuff of the series, St. Louis kind of reminded me of an old school type of team that relies on speed, relies on defense, because they played on AstroTurf at Bush Stadium. Bush Stadium traditionally had been a pitcher's park, so they kind of they kind of tailored that team around that. Meanwhile, you have the Brewers who play in this new style of what we call being an LSU fan, Gorilla Ball, which is what <laughs> LSU played for years and years and years. And, and the Brewers were something of a precursor to that. They were the ones that I really believe that they could play now. They would be now. Would they win as many games as they did in '82? I don't think they would because the pitching would be the question. But other than that, they were a lot of hitters with Thomas and Yount and um, Ben Ogilvy. Molly, you know, I mean, that, and Ogilvy is the forgotten guy in that group, right? Yeah, I mean, the dude weighed a buck eighty and led the league in homers. Yes, in 1980. Um, I mean, and just had, you know, they talk about, about Henry Aaron's wrists all the time. And Ogilvy had those strong wrists and could, he hit the ball a ton and was just a, a weed. I mean, the dude was, was thin and he was playing hurt too. 
in that series because he got hurt in the ALCS. He had missed a game of the ALCS from Bruce Ribs from making a catch against the wall. So, I mean, again, that's another factor in game seven. Well, Jonathan, look, I really appreciate you coming on, dropping some of your baseball knowledge and talking about your book. And one more time, tell us about, you know, just tell us the name of your book and where we can find it. So it's called Suds Series, um, Baseball, Beer Wars, and the Summer of 82. It's available, you know, wherever books are sold, Amazon.com or, or uh, the University of Missouri Press's website. Um, if you go to my website, 80sbaseball.com, there's a link right there on the homepage that you could get it there. Um, and I would I would encourage you, if you could, to check out my, my website. One of the things I like to do every day is, or if, if you follow me on Twitter, I have a Facebook page. Um, that's 80s baseball. I'm on Twitter at, at jdaniel2033, and I will take you on a tour of 80s baseball every day. Every day I will send out tweets or Facebook posts about, here's what happened on this day. Here's whose birthday it is. Here's who uh, had a big day. This was a, a no-hitter was thrown on this day. Here's that. So I, I have built a page, 365 pages on my blog of what happened every day in the of the year on this day in, in 1980s baseball, including the offseason. So it's a great way to, to, you know, keep abreast of what happened 40 years ago. And, of course, I'm a big fan of that page. I look at it every day. And well, once again, Mr. J, Mr. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us, for dropping your baseball knowledge and talking about your book. Thanks so much for having me, Dana. I really enjoyed it. We at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the sportshistorynetwork.com slash sponsors page, you'll find Row 1, Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. All of these offer great discounts. Specifically at Row 1, you can save 15% at the Row 1 Gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 Gallery includes over 5,200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes of wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 Shop also has thousands of more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts and long sleeve shirts, phone cases and mugs, blankets and pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. With Royal Retros, they're the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from defunct leagues and other teams in those leagues. From Play Classic Games, it's sports simulation board games. Just use the code SHN for 10% off your first order. From Thrive Fantasy, it's a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to 100 bucks. And with Mega Seats, they're tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So check them out on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com sponsors page. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash sponsors. Soundtrack is provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello, once again, and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we focus on the best of sports 
from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there, you can follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And now it is time for the top five moments in sports history from this week, from April the 2nd to April the 8th. And so without further delay, here we go. Number five, Oriole Park at Camden Yards opens in Baltimore. On April 6, 1992, something happened in baseball that would forever change the landscape of the game, both figuratively and literally. It was not a rule change or anything to do with ownership or even running a major league team. It was actually the construction and opening of a new stadium, and it wasn't just any stadium. On this day was the opening of the brand new home of the Baltimore Orioles baseball team. Their new ballpark, Oriole Park at Camden Yards, would usher in a new era of ballpark construction. Instead of the steel and concrete multi-purpose donuts that was all the rage in the 1960s and 70s, this new ballpark would be, the, be, would be baseball specific and designed similar to those ballparks from the early part of the 20th century. Reminiscent of those classic stadiums like Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, Crosley Field in Cincinnati, and Shy Park in Philadelphia. The stadium was built on the site of an old rail yard near Baltimore Harbor. Most, the most recognizable feature of the stadium is actually not in the stadium. The B&O Warehouse looms over the right field fence to give the stadium an even more of a classic feel. Adding to the lore of the ballpark, Somewhere in the vicinity of Wright Center Field was the approximate location of an old tavern once owned by a man named George H. Ruth, the father of Babe Ruth. Now with the popularity of this new stadium design, teams began to build new baseball specific parks such as Coors Field in Denver, Progressive Field in Cleveland, and the new Bush Stadium in St. Louis. This new era of, of what I call old school design was not just baseball was not just baseball specific in the NBA to replace the aging Market Square Arena the Indiana Pacers built what was then called Conseco Fieldhouse what resembled an old-fashioned basketball gym with all the modern amenities those arenas and baseball parks got its inspiration from Oriole Park and Camden Yards and yeah speaking of Baltimore number four Frank Robinson debuts as manager of the Cleveland Indians. On April the 8th, 1975, former All-Star and Hall of Fame outfielder for the Baltimore Orioles and prior to that, the Cincinnati Reds, Frank Robinson made his debut with the Cleveland Indians as their manager. Robinson managed the lowly Indians for just three seasons, yet fulfilled the wish of the late Jackie Robinson when he said that he wished he could look down the third baseline one day and see a black man managing in baseball. In 1981, Matt Robinson will return to baseball as a manager, this time in San Francisco for the Giants, becoming the first black manager in the National League. His entry into the managerial ranks opened the way for the likes of Cito Gaston, Lloyd McClendon, Ron Washington, and the manager of the reigning World Series champion Astros, Dusty Baker. Number 3. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar passes Will Chamberlain on the all-time scoring list. On April 5, 1984 in Las Vegas, Thomas and Mac Arena, the Utah Jazz, who from time to time back then, would play regular season games in Las Vegas. 
That particular night on April 8, 1984, they took on the Los Angeles Lakers. This sellout crowd of more than 18,000 fans came to see history. On this night, Lakers center Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was within range of passing Wilt Chamberlain on the all-time scoring list. In the third quarter, Kareem gathered a pass from Magic Johnson and then along the baseline and over the outstretched arm of 7-foot 4-inch jazz center Mark Eaton, Kareem connected on his patented and signature skyhook as the Jazz record home crowd erupted with cheers for the captain. Kareem would hold this all-time scoring record until this season when current Laker LeBron James passed him. Number 2. NC State beats Houston for the national championship. Now when you think of NCAA, turn NCAA basketball tournament nicknamed March Madness, one of the iconic images of a sports fan think almost immediately is the reaction of North Carolina State head coach Jim Valvano running around the court looking for someone to hug after his team pulled off one of the most memorable and improbable upsets of college basketball. On April 4, 1983, the Wolfpack was set to take on the University of Houston Cougars led by coach Guy Lewis and, and what one sports writer dubbed Texas's tallest fraternity, Phi Slamma Jamma. They were led by future basketball Hall of Famers Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler. When the Cougars defeated Louisville in the national semifinal in Albuquerque, New Mexico, pundits around the country were ready to crown Houston the national champs and the tighter game would be more of a coronation and a formality than a basketball game. Now, as it turned out, the game was extremely tight and came down to the final seconds. Here's how CBS's Gary Bender and Billy Packer described it from courtside. This is a really interesting strategy by Houston. They're aggressive now. Not staying back. Well, remember they have a team in there for, to block anything that goes inside. Down to 14 seconds. Oh, almost stolen by Drexler. They, Boy, is he good at they've that. They've got to drive to the basket. It's down to seven seconds. You can see the time. Wittenberg. Oh, that's a long way. Derek Wittenberg attempted a desperation shot that fell short and Lorenzo Charles leaped and caught the Aaron shot and dunked it before the clock hit zero. In one of great sports ironies, Phi Slamma Jamma was defeated by a dunk and North Carolina had its second national championship in school history. And the number one sports moment that took place between the dates of April the 2nd and April the 8th, Hank Aaron breaks Babe Ruth's career home run record. On April 8th, 1974, maybe the biggest sports moment in Atlanta sports history occurred at Fulton County Stadium. That night, Henry Aaron connected on a home run that resonated throughout the United States and maybe perhaps the world. He began his major league career with the Milwaukee Braves in 1954 and he hit his first home run off of St. Louis Cardinals pitcher Vic Rashi. Then for the next 20 seasons, Aaron was one of the most consistent hitters in baseball, climbing up the all-time home run record the whole time. When the season opened in 1974, 20 years after his debut with the Braves, 
He was only one home run shy of tying Babe Ruth. And on opening day of 1974 against the Cincinnati Reds, Aaron hit home run number 714 at Riverfront Stadium to tie Ruth. A few days later, in the Braves' home opener against the Los Angeles Dodgers, in front of a national television audience, Aaron hit home run number 715 against Al Downing of the Los Angeles Dodgers. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. Dodgers play-by-play announcer, the legendary Vince Gully, called the game and very succinctly pointed out the socially conscious moment and what, me- what it meant for the country and for the world. Hank Aaron would play for two more seasons and finish with 755 home runs, playing his final game with the Milwaukee Brewers. And that will do it for this edition of the top five and coming up next we'll send a shout out to the former heavyweight champion of the world who was a precursor to Muhammad Ali. During his reign as champion he would be the most famous and simultaneously the most notorious African American on earth. Details about this early 20th century boxer coming up after this quick timeout. Hey football fans, this is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I need a second to talk about Joe Zagorski. He's an NFL writer with a podcast called Pro Football in the 1970s. You see, in the 1970s, the sport of professional football grew in popularity like never before. The game became more modern, more technologically savvy. And, thanks to the tinkering of the rules throughout that decade, the product that one saw in pro football made the struggle on the field that much more exciting to watch. When you listen to Joe Zagorski's podcast titled Pro Football in the 1970s, he explores many different areas and elements of the 70s. What he focuses on are the players, the teams, games, controversies, and legacies that the decade has left for pro football fans across America. 
This is a show where the memories of what has been termed by many as the game's greatest decade are explored in vivid detail. Listening to Pro Football in the 1970s podcast will have you remembering with fondness the greats and the great moments of the game. Players like Joe Namath, Franco Harris, Roger Staubach, Bob Greasy, Earl Campbell, and Walter Payton are just some of the players that Joe talks about. Some of the games Joe talks about are Pittsburgh's immaculate reception playoff win in 1972, the original Hail Mary pass in the 1975 NFC Divisional Playoffs between the Dallas Cowboys and Minnesota Vikings. Then there's the perfect season of the 1972 Miami Dolphins. Joe also talks about team dynasties and what decade produced more of them in the 1970s? Well, teams like the Cowboys, Dolphins, Raiders, Rams, and Vikings, to name a few. Have you heard about the 26-game losing streak of the 1976-77 Tampa Bay Buccaneers? If not, Joe will take you on a wild ride through their first two seasons. So take a chance and listen to Pro Football in the 1970s with NFL author Joe Zagorski. It's just one of the great podcasts available through the Sports History Network. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you were able to stick around. Now, to close out the show, we normally send a shout out to a particular sports figure from the past that fits into this week in sports history. And this episode shout out is a perfect example of what we do here in this segment. On April 5th, 1915, 25,000 boxing fans filed into Oriental Park Racetrack in Havana, Cuba to see Jess Willard, a working cowboy from Kansas, take on the heavyweight champion Jack Johnson. The first black heavyweight champion in boxing history. The fight was taking place outside with the temperature reaching over 100 degrees and was scheduled for 45 rounds, yet lasted only 26. And that's kind of funny to say, only 26 rounds. In the 26th round, Johnson, who was beginning to tire after the 20th round, and who wouldn't, was seemingly ahead on points but was visibly hurt by Willard's body punches. Midway through that round, Willard knocked down Johnson and was counted out by the ring referee, ending Johnson's reign as heavyweight champion. John Arthur Johnson was born in Galveston, Texas on March 31, 1878. He made his boxing debut in 1898 at the age of 20, claiming the Texas middleweight title, beating Charlie Brooks in the second round of a 15-round fight. From this began his climb into the boxing world. As a heavyweight, he began to work his way up to becoming the top contender for the title, which at the time was held by Canadian Tommy Burns. Johnson would face Burns for the heavyweight title on December 26, 1908 in Sydney, Australia after two years of following Burns around the world taunting him for a match. Now Burns finally agreed to fight only fight after fight promoters had promised him $30,000 for the fight which was a lot of money back in 1908. And on Christmas, on the day after Christmas in 1908, Johnson punished Burns for 14 rounds before the fight was stopped by the Sydney police in front of over 20,000 fans at Sydney Stadium and Johnson was declared the winner. 
Now, he defeated the heavyweight champion, yet many fight fans and critics and the media didn't consider Johnson the title holder. According to the majority of fight fans, the true heavyweight champion was James Jeffries, who retired before anyone could defeat him. In the meantime, Johnson had to deal with the racism at the time, which was at the height of the Jim Crow era. With him as champion, the boxing world was embroiled in what was called the Great White Hope era, when boxing promoters and the press was looking for someone from the white race to take the title away from Johnson. Now, during that time, he faced several boxers, including Tony Ross, Al Kaufman, and the middleweight champion Stanley Ketcher, which in that fight, Johnson hit his opponent so hard that not only it knocked him out, but it also knocked out a few of Ketchell's teeth. Johnson could be seen on the fight film removing Ketchell's teeth from his glove. By 1910, Jeffries had came out of retirement six years after his last fight to try to regain the heavyweight title. Now on July 4th, 1910, billed as the fight of the century, Jeffries and Johnson would battle it out in a temporary outdoor stadium built in Reno, Nevada. While Jeffries avoided media attention until the day before the fight, Johnson reveled in it. In those same days leading up to the fight, racial tension was building throughout the country. To prevent any harm to the final, fighters, Guns were prohibited within guns were prohibited within the arena as well as the sale of alcohol. Behind the racial attitudes which was being instigated by the media in this fight of in, this, in the height of Jim Crow, an editorial in the New York Times read, quote, If the black man wins, thousands and thousands of his ignorant brothers will misinterpret his victory as justifying claims to much more than mere physical equality with their white neighbors, unquote. In front of 20,000 people, Jeffries proved unable to impose his will against Johnson, who dominated the fight. By the 15th round and after being knocked down twice in the fight, which was his first in his career, Jeffries' corner man threw in the towel to end the fight and prevent Jeffries from being knocked out. Jeffries later said, quote, I couldn't have hit him. No, I couldn't have reached him in a thousand years, unquote. The fight of the century earned Johnson $65,000, which would be $1.9 million in today's money. Yet Johnson's victory triggered race riots across the country that night as many white Americans at the time felt humiliated by Jeffrey's defeat. Race riots initiated by whites and blacks erupted in New York, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Atlanta, St. Louis, Little Rock, and Houston. In all, 25 states and 50 cities had racial incidents which at least 20 people died. Johnson, who would go on, who would hold the title until 1915 when he lost to Willard in Cuba. When his career finally ended after 95 career bouts, he had 72 wins, 11 losses, 38 by knockout, and 11 draws. He was just as notorious outside of the ring as he was inside of it mainly because of his ownership of a black and tan restaurant in Chicago which meant that it was an integrated nightclub and his two marriages to white women which at the time in the first two decades of the 20th century could cost a black man his life if he so much as flirted with a white woman. Major newspapers at the time soon claimed that Johnson was attacked by the government only after he became famous as a black man married to a white woman and was linked to other white women. Johnson was arrested on charges of violating the Mann Act. 
forbidding one to transport women across state lines for quote-unquote immoral purposes. A racially motivated charge that embroiled him in controversy for his relationship, including marriages. Sentenced to a year in prison, Johnson fled the country and fought boxing matches abroad for seven years until 1920, when he served his sentence at the federal penitentiary in Leverworth, Kansas. Johnson continued taking paying fights for many years and operated several other businesses including lucrative endorsement deals. He had expensive tailored suits, several racing cars, and he reveled in his fortune and fame at a time that most African Americans were simply trying to survive during the height of Jim Crow. Jack Johnson died on June 10, 1946 at the age of 68 after being in an automobile accident in North Carolina. Yet his impact has transcended the decades, being widely regarded as one of the most influential boxers in history and this has become the part of the culture and history of boxing. And now we'll do it for this edition of Historically Speaking Sports and thank you for listening. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get new episodes when they are released. And check us out on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 where you can get your daily dose of sports history and you could drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. If you haven't subscribed already, please, please, please do so. And also, tell your family, tell your neighbor, tell a friend, even tell a passerby on the street about us. I would really appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Dana Augusta, your host, saying so long.